Perfectionism is not, it's very subjective. Like, what is it? I think that's something that's plagued me throughout my whole medical career because I was right bushy. I started medical school at 21. I didn't know what a real doctor was supposed to be. And I think um, it relates to racism because luckily at NGMS, we had black faculty, black doctors like Dr. Torin Easterling I can look towards. But after my first year, he left. And for me, there was no doctor who looked like me. Professionalism in itself, I don't want to use the word microaggression again, but I'm, I was aware that some of the standards I was being held to were very European or very white or, or not for me. And I think I had to learn as the black doctor that I'm the first version of myself. And I have to now, as a conscious black man, as a first version of myself, I have to make these decisions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Shrinking Burnout, the podcast where two psychiatrists discuss issues related to clinician burnout. I'm Dr. Andy Wu, and I co-host this show with Dr. Varsha Radnakrishnan. This is the second part of our Racism Medicine podcast, where we featured three resident physicians, Dr. Maya Kandiker, Dr. Audrey Lee, and Dr. Elian Obamado, and discussed ongoing and long-standing issues regarding racism in medicine. If you haven't already, listen to the first part of this podcast we released last week. And something else that you mentioned, Maya, the idea of feeling exhausted, I guess that sort of ropes back into the idea of why we're talking about this in the first place in a burnout podcast. I mean, having to explain yourself to your patients, to your colleagues, having to be the mouthpiece for your community is exhausting. And I think that plus the, you know, existing responsibilities of being a physician, being a resident, I mean, it's a lot to expect of a single person. And I'm just thinking, you know, one of the things that we were talking about in the beginning is the idea of facing racism from uh, patients. And I know personally, and I'm sure every single one of us has stories. I remember there's one um, situation where in medical school, I was rotating in a family medicine practice. And um, I was like the only person of color working there. And I remember a few of my patients were elderly and very racist and were asking me all kinds of things and making jokes about people who are Hindu and like asking, do I wear a red dot? Like all kinds of very odd things are like, oh, is a red dot for a reset button or something like that? And yeah, it was pretty bad. And they asked me if my parents were setting me up with like an arranged marriage things like that. They're like, oh, they'll find you like a nice man, right? It was just like all kinds of ridiculous things that made me dread going into work every day. And I don't think I necessarily have felt that level of very overt racism. I certainly think there's more so microaggressions day to day, but all of that adds up and it feels really exhausting to have to go to work when you have to deal with that on top of everything else that you're already being dealt. Yeah. I'm going to talk about a related topic, but Audrey, did you have anything else you wanted to add about this? Yeah, I think like the idea of there being a minority tax on people and trying to balance elevating black and brown voices to the forefront, but also not placing the onus on people to like constantly be the ones explaining and educating. I feel like that's something also that in medicine, especially because we have so few people, and this kind of gets back to the entire issue surrounding people who are underrepresented in medicine and how we fix that that kind of burden is not fairly placed. And that's something that, again, we all have to kind of work on figuring out. 
Yeah. And Maya, you mentioned a situation where in 2020, you're tired about being the mouthpiece, being the token person to explain Black Lives Matter, to explain what the Black experience is. And something that happened recently, which I think was very well-intentioned, following all the protests basically coming out, one of my attendings, a very well-meaning attending, basically came up with these hypothetical situations as to what the psychiatrists were to do if they were to encounter a racist patient. And basically, you know, it was really interesting. He was giving the lecture through Zoom to a bunch of residents, and there were, I remember there was, there was maybe two people called, there's me, and then also... And him basically saying like, oh, so if a patient says something that's overtly racist, what would you do? And me and you know, our response was like, it really depends on how I'm feeling that day. How exhausted, <laughs> if I'm feeling exhausted, if I'm tired, and if I had a long day and this patient just said something that's like mildly racist and whatever, just like, okay, whatever. Why is it my responsibility to take on the fact that I have to correct every single racist person in the world? Now, maybe it means a little bit differently if you're a white provider and you encounter something that's racist and you perhaps have an increased enthusiasm or verve to be able to do something like that. I had a patient on the inpatient unit that suddenly decided to stop seeing me because I was a communist for some reason, but whatever. She was psychotic. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. But is it really my responsibility? I'm tired. I don't want to have to always explain. And I do think this level of fatigue, it contributes not only to burnout, but this is like something to think about when we think about collectively addressing racism, especially as the minority person. Um, I definitely agree with you. I think the fatigue of being a Black person it's kind of been inherited on, on many different levels. It's embodied with Negro spirituals that say we shall overcome. And constantly, this is something I deal with. But I think outside of it, I think it's the bane of our existence. I want to get to like existential of just being a moral agent and you have to decide to take the high road or not. I think being a physician is very much one of those places where you're constantly asked to do more already. Like I gave up all my 20s so I could be a psychiatrist. You know? And I have a quarter million in debt. No big deal. It's chill. Um, but we're constantly asked to do more. I think Corona was a uh, test run in that. Uh, you know, they stand and clap for us, but won't give us raises. We are definitely excluded. And on top of that, being someone of color, I think this is something I've learned. And it's not right, but I'm just saying that this is my truth, that um, there is a minority tax. You are going to have to do two times better for people to see you. These are things that I've just been fed since I was a kid and things that I just embody to the point that when the drudgery happens, it's like, I don't even think about it anymore. It's like, all right, someone's being racist again. Yeah, I think there's like a scale of how egregious racist comments or behaviors are towards you and where you are during that day of how you're going to respond. Like you said, if it's been a long day and you make a small comment, I really don't have time to deal with this today. And as somebody who sits at the intersection of many minority identities, I'm Black. I'm a woman, I'm queer, it gets very exhausting. And sometimes all of those things are attacking me at once. Like we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're physicians. So we're already exhausted from dealing with the influx of patients that we have to take care of. And then there's all of this extreme focus on racism, which takes a toll on me because this is what I'm seeing all day, every day, people discussing protests and police brutality and death and all this other stuff, then they're on top of that, 
is the aspect of violence against women, which recently this week, I'm not sure if you guys have heard about this, but I'm here in Florida, so it's very big news, yeah. with this protester in Tallahassee, a 19-year-old Black woman, Nigerian woman, who went missing after being sexually assaulted, and then her body was found five or six days later, and she was murdered. So this is a woman who, like myself, is out in the streets protesting against racism, and at the same time, experienced violence at the hands of a Black man. So it's almost like you can't catch a break. And it's, I just get, I just can't deal with that at every moment of my life. And sometimes I'm ready and I'm willing to have these conversations with people. But when everything seems to be piling on you all at the same time, it's a little bit harder. And so that's why sometimes I, I find it hard to have these conversations at work because you're dealing with people who may be ignorant, but willing to learn. But at this point, I'm not willing to teach. So that is something that kind of weighs on me because I think it's important to spread information and try to combat racism in any way possible. And that includes, but does not stop at education. But that doesn't mean that I have to be the person that is bearing that labor to educate everyone else. I think one of the hardest things is in the moment when someone is making a remark like that, you're feeling exhausted, you're feeling frustrated. How do you not show anger and affect during that moment? And why are we always taught to basically take it and deal with it, roll with it? If they're racist, you know, you have to just deal with it, move on. I just feel like in moments like that, maybe in medical school, I was a little bit more acquiescent because I also felt like this was like a different power dynamic. This was like my attendings patient, not necessarily my patient. But now I have way less tolerance for it. I find myself speaking up a lot more. But at the same time, I'm almost worried that is this unprofessional for me to get mad in this situation? And if so, then why is that unprofessional? Yeah, let's think about this, really. So when it comes to why should why are we always taught to just take it and not say anything? So like we can talk about the medical system and medical education. When you're the medical student, there's a medical hierarchy. You don't say anything. You're not supposed to say anything about the patient. You're the medical student. You got the resident. You got the attending. How dare you say anything that could potentially ruin the patient-doctor relationship, right? But even for me, for my upbringing, so as the child of immigrant parents, I was taught from an early age don't make noise, right? You know, you want to quietly work your butt off, basically demonstrate people that you are worth it by just showing that, you know, that you should work really hard. And you can't make noise, you can't talk. And that's something for me that I've always really hated. I think it's like a mix too, because you have these like cultural factors. And, you know, I'm not going to speak about being a black American, but obviously there are incentives and there is an education in terms of maybe you shouldn't really be speaking up too much that you get sort of indoctrinated with or you get taught, maybe out of survival, maybe out of culture, maybe out of education. It's sort of ingrained in us. And then to be able to actively fight against this already is really distressing for us to try to do. I think that there's a weird dynamic because coming into the field of medicine, you finally feel like you have some semblance of power and accomplishment and then just being knocked down by some of these racist comments or behaviors can be really shocking in the beginning when it first happens to you. And then there's also, I think when you're a medical student, this idea that, you know, you don't want to be unprofessional, 
and that it's almost like you're lucky to have made it this far and you don't want to mess it up. And it gets back to being underrepresented in medicine. And I had mentioned before that that's not an accident because not only is it harder for Black people to get into medicine, not because we're not as intelligent, sometimes because of the lack of resources or mentorship or whatever, but also we have to use a historical lens when we look at something like this. Because not that long ago, Black people were excluded from being able to go to medical school. And even as we were starting to get more and more acceptances, there was something called the Flexner Report that was released in the early 1900s, I think it was like 1910, which called for the medical field to really vet the people that are becoming physicians and make sure that they are high caliber. And that included closing lots of schools because Flexner felt like there were too many schools and too many people becoming physicians. And specifically closing a lot of historically black schools, which was almost the only way that some black people were becoming physicians. And he said, you only need to keep two. And that's exactly what they did. They closed all the historically black schools except for two, Howard and Meharry. So when you think about that, it really set people back a good amount and really put a disadvantage there. And so when we come to the present day, we can't say, oh man, why aren't there more black doctors? It must be because we're just failing at recruitment. No, it's because we have a history of literally trying to exclude black people from medicine. And so when we make it here, it's almost like we look around, most of the room doesn't look like us. At NJMS, we're one of the most diverse medical schools in the country. And that means that we had 14. Black people out of a class of like 170. That was like the same for downstate as well. <laughs> right. That's not a that's not an amazing amount, but to us it was amazing. We we're like, <laughs> like wow, look at how diverse we are. <laughs> <laughs> like we're celebrating it. Like, oh, there's a dozen of us. It's so amazing. But it's like we have so far to go. And that takes a toll on the people that are there because knowing that this is an accomplishment means that you weren't meant to be here. I'm going to add to what Maya said. So with uh, racism is definitely when people are in power and there's a systemic effort to limit people per se. And I think that directly applies to what professionalism is for me. There are clear guidelines of things we shouldn't do with doctors, mm. don't do patients. I don't know. Don't wear bow ties. I refuse. Exactly. That's <laughs> not thing. Professionalism is not, it's very subjective. Like, what is it? I think that's something that's plagued me throughout my whole medical career because I was right bushy. I started medical school in 21. I didn't know what a real doctor was supposed to be. And I think um, it relates to racism because luckily at NJMS, we had black faculty, black doctors like Dr. Torin Easterling I can look towards. But after my first year, he left. And for me, there was no doctor who looked like me. Uh, even on the interview trail, I was like, oh, should I keep a beard or cut it? And uh, like, the responses I literally got were, maybe you can get away with it because black guys look like weird. Professionalism in itself, I don't want to use the word microaggression again, but I'm, I was aware that some of the standards I was being held to were very European, were very white, were, were not for me. And I think I had to learn as the black doctor that I'm the first version of myself. And I have to now, as a conscious black man, as a first version of myself, I have to make these decisions. Some of my friends cut off their dreads for their interview cycle. They cut off their beards. I look terrible, you know, I look horrible. But it's beyond the physical. I think um, I really had to come into myself. And I think there's something 
that we're all doing per se. Uh, so we all paid our dues. We kept silent. You know, we're medical students. We hadn't really made it. But now I've matched, so I'm hoping to utilize my platform better. But I, it does bring up this kind of nuanced thing of privilege itself. I think privilege is something we talk about as for us white people, people who were um, not underserved. Colloquially, we call them Karens, you know, in meme culture. I'm, I'm just going to say, I think one of the biggest flexes of privilege is that we, I think nowadays, we're using privilege in, this, in the way a Karen would, per se. I think we're no longer tolerating a lot of we're calling it out online. We're following up people making complaints with their jobs. I don't know if this is the best thing per se, but it's something we're doing, just culturally speaking. And as a resident, I know you guys are actual residents of foreign working. I want to be more vocal. I want to be heard when these issues happen. And I'm not, I can't answer how I'll be heard, but I definitely know that uh, I won't take things sitting down. Or I've, I've been granted this privilege now that I'm an actual doctor. Elian, you mentioned, like, how can I make change as a resident? I think Audrey has a lot to say about that. Sure. Um, and I also just want to point out that, like, one other facet in which racism affects us all and burnout is that, you know, we as physicians advocate a lot for our patients in a whole lot of ways. And it this is kind of more in a, I guess, like, nebulous, but, like, very real structural way where we spend all of these hours, like every day, working tirelessly for our patients. And to know that like all these little changes that we do, oh my God, let's like up titrate their metoprolol. Let's like, I don't know, do whatever. Not that metoprolol is like not a great medication for certain things, but like all these little things that we pour our energies into, all of the notes that we write, all the orders that we sign, all of that matters very little in comparison to all of the large factors that go on. Um, I, I feel like biopsychosocial model is like tossed around a lot as just like shorthand, but it's, I think what, like the stat is like 10% or something. Someone's going to have to like fact check that, but I think it's like 10% of what we do in the hospital is actually what's affecting our patients' health, health outcomes and everything else outside of the hospital is what's actually like impacting people's lives. And I feel like there is also a piece of that in terms of burnout where you know that all this work that you're doing is not necessarily actually making your patients' lives better. I think most of us go into this, at least in this day and age, to try and make a difference. So when you're working against this like huge system that you feel like you can't really fix in a lot of ways because it extends so much both within medicine structurally and outside of it, like that too, I think is something that can cause a lot of distress amongst, especially amongst trainees who already feel like they have limited power, but certainly I think probably even for like seasoned attendings. Okay. So how have you personally addressed this sort of disconnect? Yeah, I think the people who are at our home institution in Boston are probably a little more aware of this. But certainly within Boston, there is a lot of conversation, which is interesting because I think Boston as a city has a reputation for being perhaps not the most progressive of places surrounding race, to put it lightly. There was definitely a spotlight series in the Globe two years ago that highlighted all the ways in which the city was profoundly racist in systemic ways. Which is not to say that there are not many people here who are actively working to make that better. And I think that I feel like that transition from being a med student to a resident, I think like even 
wherever you are in the cycle of your training, there's always like a sense that, oh, like, I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to lose my privilege in saying this. Like, what if I say something wrong? What if I say something that's controversial? What if I get blowback for this? And I'm not sure if that feeling ever ends unless you're like the chair of medicine somewhere. Maybe not even then, who knows? Especially surrounding this most recent state of conversation surrounding how to be more actively anti-racist and how to use and leverage our power as physicians, even those who are in training. So there is essentially like a messaging group that is circulated quite widely, I think, amongst like Boston area trainees and residents that I helped organize. And it's nice to be able to information share between different programs um, surrounding what's going on and how to effectively organize, how to fold into existing efforts surrounding this, like especially with a lot of guidance from organizations like White Coats for Black Lives, which is primarily, again, like med student driven and residents now, um, because it started like when people were med students and now are residents. And how to both agitate in an immediate time frame, how to demand accountability from our institutions, and also kind of how to translate that in a more longitudinal sense into things like curricular change or recruitment or, I don't know, supporting more Black-owned business. Like, I feel like these are all things that trainees are able to talk about with perhaps more latitude than med students are. And a part of this is because I think programs tend to want to be seen as like responsive to their house staff. Certainly the house staff are what drive many hospitals in a lot of ways. And I would like to think that our program, at least at our institution, does actually like genuinely care about these things as well. And I think have been fairly responsive. But I would say that, again, to not like co-opt the work that has already very much been done and is being done by really great organizations out there, but to really use that in your hospital and in your local setting to coordinate and to organize in that way. It doesn't take as much as I thought it would, because I think a lot of this is like hidden sentiment, you know, like we kind of talked about this earlier, but we assume that hopefully if you're like going into medicine, you're not like a racist person, even though we are all complicit in racism, but you hope that people are kind of like on board, generally speaking, with being actively anti-racist. But people don't like talk about it in a day-to-day fashion unless there are these inciting events, because as we've all talked about, it's uncomfortable for people. So to have someone who is always there or an organization that is always there to help spur these conversations and to continue the conversation like we talked about to have a space is really important and to like, again, not trying to place all of that onus on people who are Black trying to find people within your residency program who are also similarly interested in this, trying to speak to people at your institution and other programs who are interested in this and building a coalition surrounding that. I feel like these are all things that as residents, like you can kind of naturally occur because you are interfacing with people in different specialties a lot of the way, quite frequently, like the professional and the personal mix, like in like your friendships, And I feel like there is a nimbleness that can occur from being a trainee and not necessarily feeling beholden to an institution in quite the same way as like an attending is. Because like, what are you going to do? Fire me? Well, sorry, you kind of can't. So Someone needs to do the Q30 hour call in the ICU, right? But I, I honestly think the fact that the institution was able to support you guys and really, again, not give you that perceived blowback 
in terms of maybe I shouldn't say anything as a trainee, that is so valuable when you're trying to, to advocate for something. And Archie, just to get a little bit more of a sense of the specifics. So you basically created this platform for a community or like a, a way for people to connect. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you've been communicating? How did you st- decide to start this? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think surrounding the piece of across like programs in the city, as I mentioned, just personally, a lot of my friends are interested in the same things that I'm interested in. So personally, I like plan on specializing in infectious disease, which tends to be a little more progressive in certain social issues because it's so like intertwined <laughs> with the medical issues already. And even within infectious disease, I plan on specializing in like addiction medicine. So I think there's already kind of a focus towards that in terms of like the people that I meet and like the friendships that I've developed through time. So in kind of speaking with people at different institutions that I knew, it was kind of like, hey, like, it's weird that all of this stuff is happening. And like, there's a lot of energy here that people want to say something and do something. But we're not really sure how to best do that and like is anyone doing something we don't want to co-opt work like let's like tap into our existing like faculty resources our own personal networks to figure this out so there was essentially initially a whatsapp and then like a slack that was created um to facilitate these conversations definitely recommend slack also as an organizing tool not paid for by slack just I had not really used it very much before, but it was fairly intuitive. And we started having quite frequent Zoom meetings, creating meeting agendas, and what the scope exactly of this is as a group, what really name it as even as a group, like unclear, but it's really just a meeting place for people to information share and to bounce ideas off of each other, to find protest buddies, like et cetera. So to share information about protests, how to like balance your risk as a healthcare worker, like possibly bringing coronavirus risk into a large group of people who are predominantly already at risk and have been disproportionately affected by coronavirus. Like a lot of these conversations that are kind of more specialized, I think, to to people who are within medicine, who are healthcare providers, and who are very interested in advocating for change. So that was kind of one piece of it. Kind of out of this, a lot of people decided that, and in conjunction, I think with national like white coats for Black Lives, there were a lot of meal-ins that occurred, similar to the die-ins that we were all alluding to back in 2014, and this time in recognition of the awful things that are happening, obviously, surrounding police brutality and violence in this country, kneeling in, in particular, in a as a way to sort of flip the narrative surrounding George Floyd's murder. So I think many of us had organized something that kind of rapidly spread in in our particular institution. What had occurred was there was a small group of internal medicine residents that worked with also one junior faculty member who was a recent graduate of our program to kind of email our internal medicine program leadership to say like, we demand action of some kind, like we want to do this. We are doing this actually, just letting you know. And we were happy that I think one, just bringing it back to burnout for a second, I think feeling supported and feeling heard is really important. And I think we were very fortunate in that our administration and leadership did feel like, yes, like this is something that's really important. How can we help you? Let's facilitate this. And quickly kicked it up to, um, like leadership levels who looped in like a lot of logistical stuff that, you know, quite frankly, like as 
a second year medicine resident, I don't know how to do like getting street permits, like from the city of Boston and stuff like that. So um, talking to communications teams about whether or not it like, like, this is what we're planning on reading. Like, is this okay? And people being like, yeah, this is an important message. Go for it. Like, we agree. This is such an important thing to say. So, I mean, I think that's one piece of it. And I don't want this to just be a performative thing. And I think that's like what a lot of us are concerned about. Like, this has to translate into something, right? It's not just we all go and kneel in for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And then like, all right, guys, we're done with racism. Good job. Yeah, and not to obviously make light of that truly long period of time, but I think just having that platform to have a lot of people turn out, I think several hundred people came in person to the protest or kneel in rather at Beth Israel itself. And then because leadership had circulated it throughout the entire hospital network to Beth Israel Leahy, something like 900-ish people showed up in the Zoom to kind of also be in solidarity. And it was kind of cool because within the Zoom comments, at least a lot of people spoke movingly and commented movingly about how it was really important that we were here, racism was terrible, how we needed to do more and how actions speak louder than words. And so that I mean, I think like following up on this, there is a lot of stuff that we're trying to work on planning um, to create more substantive change. And I know like our sister institutions across the city of Boston are also thinking in those same ways. But it's been really helpful to be able to talk to residents who are in similar positions across like the city to get a better sense of like, hey, like we tried this at our hospital. This is what our leadership said. Oh, okay, interesting, because this is what our leadership just said. Hey, did you guys see this resource like surrounding this is like how many patients we serve that are on mass health, which is like our, I guess, state version of Medicaid? Hey, like, have you guys thought about this as like a way to um, generate donations? Like, there's a lot of energy out there. And I think it's also healing to see how many other people are interested in pursuing this and pouring their limited time into doing this as well. So I think that's just like a little bit of what's been going on over the last few weeks to month, really. Yeah. And Audrey, I think you're sort of underselling yourself because I'm sure it took a lot of work to be able to organize all of that. And I know you're just one person of many residents that were able to work and, and try to organize towards that. You know, really, like I, I was there in terms of that demonstration and the fact that, you know, for me, like, I'm just like really impressed that you're able to do this as a trainee and dealing with the regular stuff that people deal with as a resident, like, you know, waking up super early, working six days a week, dealing with long call and all this stuff. And on top of that, being able to advocate for this change and agitate. I think, you know, hats off to you, Audrey. That's that's all I'm going to say. Thank you. Again, a lot of different people. And I think for me, this is nourishing, feeling like being able to do something bigger than the individual clinical interactions that we have, which while important, again, like I mentioned, make up not that much as or not as much as I would like of like health outcome. I mean, just because we are talking about racism in medicine also as a whole, I think it is important to also bring up a couple of other concepts that we can touch upon. I don't want them to necessarily detract from the conversation that we've already been having. And so the one thing that I did want to bring up was the the idea of the model minority myth. Um, So it's the perception of essentially universal success among uh, Asian Americans with the perception of higher socioeconomic success, education, marital stability, 
low criminality than the population average. It is a, in a lot of ways, what we think of almost like a beneficial stereotype and generalization. At the same time, it ends up having really far-reaching social consequences. For one, most Asians are assumed to be at least middle class and have access to greater resources. But at the same time, oftentimes as a result, the requirements are higher for Asian students than white students when it comes to applying for school, for example. It can end up disproportionately affecting Asians compared to white peers. It also basically groups Asians into an, a homogenous population, which is really like so far from the truth. There can be a misrepresentation of people being in a higher socioeconomic class than maybe the reality. And then there's also this like cultural values that we should think about, like pride, for example, within a family, feeling like you may not necessarily be able to divulge, say, in like a college essay or something like that, to talk freely and, and candidly about your experiences. I mean, just as an example, so my parents, they grew up actually quite disadvantaged in India and then moved here. Granted, they, they did really well once they moved here in their 20s, but they started off with nothing. And I think the idea of that trope being applied to everyone is also not necessarily fair or accurate. And I think, you know, the reason why I bring this up is because I think this concept in some ways starts to almost absolve Americans from addressing racism and the damage it inflicts, given that Asian Americans are treated as the model minority almost. So it's saying, hey, look, this is how good some of the minorities in our country are doing. Why can't everyone do this? And that's total BS. We know that. Um, it ends up actually manifesting, in my opinion, almost like a wedge or a division between minority populations itself due to this perception of almost preferential treatment and deference towards one minority group over another, at times even rewarding one minority group or penalizing another, for example. And so I think that's something very important to also address. Yeah, a couple of things to add on to what Varsha was saying. So when it comes to the model minority myth, that essentially means that there is a non-model minority. And when we think about the model minority myth and this concept of essentially anti-blackness that it perpetuates. So all of these things about stereotypes about Asian people, stereotypes about black people, the reference point is always the majority population or the, the white person or the white individual. And so it's the Asian person compared to the dominant society. It's the black person compared to the dominant society. And so in the end, you know, creating a stereotype like this serves nobody except for the dominant population. One thing that is worth mentioning how it applies to medical students. So I don't know if any of you guys saw this article a few years back. It was a Yale doctor who basically discussed the differences in AOA membership amongst different ethnic groups. And essentially, they controlled for all the stuff that you would think contributes to AOA, which is step one scores, your research, your community service, your leadership. Oh, and just and Andy, just for our listeners, um, if you want to define what AOA is. AOA is a honor society for medical students that quote unquote do well in terms of their medical education. And even after they controlled for all the things that would normally contribute to this membership, when they looked at the different ethnicity backgrounds, they basically found that for black medical students, they had an adjusted odds ratio of 0.16, less likely to be in AOA. And even for the model minorities, the Asian medical students, well, supposedly the confidence interval or odds ratio of them being an AOA membership was 0.52. So a Asian medical student is half as likely to be 
in AOA compared to a, a white medical student. And these are the results of the study that he said. And, and obviously, you can't just say, well, it's because there's racism going on. I mean, we can probably guess that there is some sort of racism going on. This is just part of the system that we're in. And, you know, these societal level things like a model minority stereotype and all of the black stereotypes and, and racism and all of this, it all goes and factors into our medical education. So we're not excluded. The sad reality is that it's everywhere. And so I just wanted to wrap up on that note. Thank you to our three guests here. Thank you, Dr. Audrey Lee, Dr. Maya Conker, and Dr. Eliana Bamado. We really enjoyed having you on today. So today we discussed some very major concepts, including institutionalized racism within medicine, historical perspectives of racism in medicine, social determinants of health, ongoing health inequity, clinician distress when dealing with racism directed by patients and by colleagues, and racism faced by non-white providers within medical education and within the system as a whole. So this one article that I was actually reading a couple of days ago by NPR, it really summarizes what we've been talking about. So the article basically said, in quotes, we need to start naming racism and not race as a risk factor for disease. And to our listeners, we would love to hear from you as well. Email us at shrinkingburnout at gmail.com with your thoughts, comments, or if you'd like to be interviewed on the podcast. We are committed to honoring your privacy and anonymity. Shrinking Burnout is a podcast about furthering the discussion of clinician burnout and recognizing the resilience and hard work that clinicians regularly demonstrate. Nothing on this show should be taken as medical or psychiatric advice. All of the opinions expressed on this podcast are solely our own and do not reflect those of our employer. 